Okay, we're going to pick up with uh, Hosea chapter 3 today. Hosea chapter 3. And then because chapter 3 is really short, we'll probably do some or all of chapter 4 also. Um, who'd like to read 3, 1 through 5 for us? Hosea 3, 1 through 5. Bob, thank you. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Okay. Any, uh, any initial observations here on chapter 3? Hosea chapter 3. Yeah, Bob. God again is using him as an illustration as to what he's going to do. Okay. Uh, him being? Hosea. Hosea. Okay, good. What else? Other... Uh, other things that you notice here. Obviously the point of the end of Verse 1 is not that you shouldn't buy cinnamon raisin bread from the store. What's the, what's the deal with that? Is that like Yeah, so there's a couple of uh, other places where that's mentioned, like in Second Samuel. Um, David offers all these different offerings, and then he distributed all the people a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins, and the people departed. So in the context of worship, so in this instance, it's closely following after the worship of God. So it seems to be maybe some degree of celebration. So maybe the issue is not so much um, that they are eating the raisin cakes, but what God are they worshiping prior to? And what is all this associated with? Because it says they turn to other gods, right? Okay. Going back to what we saw in chapter 2, who was the reason for them having anything to enjoy? It was God. And so if you turn to another God and say, hey, thank you, God of the Ammonites, that you are the reason that I can enjoy this food, it's a kind of blasphemy against God, right? Rejecting who God is. All right, um, how about verse 2? going on in verse 2. 
Yeah, Brady. Okay, so is he paying her to stay with him? That's one possibility. It's another possibility, Tina. Uh, it says here probably from a slave auction. Yeah. So I think what you said, Braden, was a good guess that he is paying her to stay with him. Like, what's your daily wage kind of idea? But I think in the context when he says, I bought her for myself, instead of it being, I, if it said, I paid her, then I think we would go with that. But because he bought her for himself, um, there does seem to be this Im implication that she's gotten herself into some kind of slavery uh, in connection with her giving herself to all these other men and running away from her husband, all that sort of thing. I mean, there's a parallel a little bit, I think, with the prodigal son. He spends all his father's money, and he has to find a job, and he's sort of trapped in a kind of slavery feeding pigs to these other people and he finally says I'm gonna go home because I will you know be able to go home in this case it seems like she wasn't even able to go home without there being some sort of of uh, payment to whoever owned her at this point um, so 15 shekels of silver um, I didn't look up to see exactly how much money that is but I mean a homer and a half of barley is not a great deal of grain so, Tina? It says here, together the total may have equal 30 pieces of silver, the price paid for a common slave. Okay. Barley was the offering of one accused of a death. Okay. So, the, the fact that he is buying her for like the price of a common slave she's she's kind of fallen a long way kind of idea maybe okay it is interesting in this context that she is allowed to live because if you look at the law there were in most if not all cases there was supposed to be a, a stoning for adultery and perhaps the fact that there is not that is both a picture of God's forgiveness and a sign of how unfaithful the people of Israel were to the law in general um, obviously there's later incidents whether the story in the Gospels is original or more of a historical uh, account that got kind of as a footnote added in later um, the woman caught in adultery the point would be that in Jesus' day they had come to use the law as a tool against other people and that was not the point of it and so God has the right to show compassion even though the law demands punishment, God has the right to show compassion, but there has to be payment that is made and there has to be atonement that is made. Um, and we'll get into some of that later. What about verse 3? What's going on in verse 3? And maybe tied into verses 4 and 5. So there's this cycle of Braden? Yeah, 
Okay. So today, legally, it's interesting that confinement in some cases is worse than certain other crimes. Like if you restrict somebody's freedom to go out and do something, you can get criminally charged in our law system today. Uh, in this instance, in their particular society, and given her uh, tendencies up to this point, he's basically saying, you're going to stay home and you're not going to go anywhere else because every time she's gone somewhere else, she's run after her sin again and abandoned Hosea. And if we look at verses 4 and 5, you're not going to be able to go and worship your false gods. Gomer, you're not going to be able to go and participate in your immorality. There's this one-for-one -one parallel between God arranging circumstances to prevent the Israelites from committing their sin of spiritual adultery in the same way that Hosea arranges circumstances so that his wife cannot commit actual adultery and run away from him. And the result, the goal in verse 5, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, David their king, and come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Um, Bob? I don't know if I'm mixing this up, but this is prior to the captivity, correct? Yes. So is that what he's painting the picture of, you're going to be brought back in so that you can't go out? Is that the I think that's what is. I think that's what he's foreshadowing, yes. That you both will not be able to and you will not perhaps even want to go after all these other gods after you see the devastation that comes with the captivity. Uh, you can read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Sorry, anything else on 3, 1 through 5? Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah. I just remembered this thing that I heard um, after the captivity, and this should have tipped me off. There was, um, if, if I remember this correctly, there's no record of them worshiping the Baals ever again. Yeah. What is interesting is I think some people have overstated and said they never committed idolatry again. They found a way to commit idolatry, but not with Baals, right? The way that they committed Id idolatry was that they began to worship their traditions connected with the law, whereas before they worshipped false gods. But yes, as far as I know, there's not a record of them worshipping Baals or Ashtoreth or uh, Molech or all of those others after the exile. Um, there is still false worship, though, in the, in the case of the Samaritans, which we see um, Jesus rebuking the woman at the well about. And so I think, again, we have to remember that the northern tribes of Israel, their history follows a rather different path than the southern tribes of Israel. So the northern tribes are scattered. They bring in uh, Gentiles to live in the land. What's left of the northern tribes intermarries with the Gentiles in the land, becomes the Samaritans. Some of them are scattered all across the face of the earth and never return home. There's not the restoration that there is for the people of Judah and Benjamin. And so uh, I think we can say relatively confidently that the tribe of Judah and those in the southern kingdom who return no longer worship idols, at least openly. Um, 
but the northern kingdom still has false worship that continues even until Jesus' day, given the encounter with the woman at the well. It's also interesting, and going back to what we looked at at 1 Peter, uh, and even Paul's comments to the Romans, Jews living in Rome, that I don't think that all of the Jewish people were as upstanding as we might think. And I think this is true in a lot of cases. To the degree that religious leadership is hypocritical and corrupt, it doesn't get better for the people under them. So consider the Middle Ages. There was a time period in which there were three popes all condemning the followers of the other pope to hell. The common people were sort of caught in the middle, had no idea what to do. Uh, you come to the time of Martin Luther, Pope Leo X is a pope who loved the arts and, and opulent things, and it is said of him, uh, as a kind of a legend, I think there's probably truth to it, that he would have made an excellent pope had he been but a little religious. Then you had the popes before and after him that were all tied in with the Borgia family, which was a family known for adultery and incest and all sorts of moral corruption. And they were basically controlling aspects of the papacy and a lot of the things that were going on in the uh, ruling classes at that time. And so into that chaos, the message of the gospel comes. And the common people say, what are we doing listening to these guys who are fighting with each other and living immorally and don't have, care anything for God and charging us ridiculous amounts of money to rebuild this huge basilica in Rome versus the gospel message of hope and forgiveness of sin instead of the slavery that they were being offered. And so I think there's a parallel in that time to what was going on in Jesus' day in that there was the intermixed worship of the Samaritans and the hypocritical worship of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and so forth in uh, Jerusalem, and neither of those were what God wanted from the people, and so that's why I think there's this huge initial response, the message of John the Baptist and then of Jesus. That's getting far afield from your question, but... Norma? Uh-huh. 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 Are you asking when that takes place? Um, I think it's difficult to identify an exact date on some of these things. Uh... I don't think that this is ultimately fulfilled until the last days when Jesus returns and all the stuff that happens in Revelation takes place. There are people who say, well, but some of this took place you know, after they were carried off into exile. But like I was just saying, a lot of the northern tribes don't ever come back. And there is not a wide-scale repentance like we see described in the book of Revelation. So I think that the fulfillment of verse 5 is probably in the end times during or after the tribulation, all of those events that take place when Israel is brought to repentance and returns to God. There are some people who say Israel blew it, forget Israel, it's just the church. I've explained on a number of occasions why I think that's false. There are people who say this was fulfilled in some historical instance. 
I don't know if I would say that's false as it seems kind of um, uh, I'm reminded of uh, Mark Twain said the difference between a good word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. We're not talking about words, but if we talk about this, this visible uh, total repentance of the people of Israel turning to God, and then we say, oh, like 50 people trusted Jesus. That, that doesn't seem to fit the grandeur of what verse 5 is getting at. So that would be my argument against it having happened already, because I just don't think there's any historical incident when we've seen a, a widespread repentance of the sons of Israel trembling before God, before David their king, which is probably prefiguring Christ. Um, I just don't think we see that until Jesus comes to rule and reign on the earth. So I think in the last days, in the time that Revelation talks about, um, okay, verses 1 through 6, 4, 1 through 6. Who wants to read that for us? Jim, thank you. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet no one finds fault and let none offer reproof. For your people are like those who contend with the priests, so you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. Okay. So what's the picture that's being painted in verse 4? I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Okay. Even when it says the Lord has a case, what sort of setting do we sort of have in our minds? What role is God's the prosecutor coming against the people, charging them with their faults, right? Their transgressions. Um, why does God care if there is faithfulness? Because God... He's God, and what is God like? God's faithful. And so, yeah. In the way of this, I mean, I don't have to say, but doesn't his perfection demand it? I mean, if he, if he didn't get angry at it, then there's fault in him? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a lot of emphasis on the kind of sins that are taking place. Um, it is interesting, verse 2 should be concerning to us in light of where we are as a nation. Swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. 
violence with bloodshed following bloodshed. I'm not saying we are Israel, but I'm saying the fact that God is judging Israel for these sorts of things should not make us say, oh, well, Israel got punished, but we're America, nothing can touch us. That would be stupid of us to say, right? Uh, there's also this, verse 3 is an interesting idea that we see several places, like we saw it in Isaiah. The land mourns, everyone languishes, the beasts, the birds, and the fish disappear. So this idea of it not just like the curse of sin and the practice of sin, not just affecting the people who are sinning, but the entirety of where they are. Um, I think it anticipates Romans 8 where it says all creation groans for the redemption even until now. Um, all of these sorts of things, like there's, there's severe consequences both personally and sort of a spillover effect on everyone around us of various kinds of sin. But then in verses 4 through 6, what is, what is mm, perhaps part of the reason that's given for why things are being this way? Mm-hmm. And uh, churches that have sort of bought into the business model of like, here's the five-year plan, and here's the community survey, and here's the how we can be successful as an organization, they, they like to quote a verse like this and make it sound like, well, if you don't have a plan going forward, things just fall apart, which is true, but not what the verse is talking about. What is the knowledge that is lacking? Knowledge of whom or knowledge of what? Knowledge of God, right? So it's not a lack of vision of planning out your future. It's a lack of even acknowledging who God is that leads to destruction. And the reason that the priest and the prophet are mentioned here is it was their job. Why is it that the people are stumbling for lack of knowledge because they don't have knowledge of God because the people who are supposed to give them the knowledge of God don't do that and don't live it out in front of them? Which perhaps also anticipates what James says about there not being many teachers because God will hold into account. Uh, God, I think, is holding the priests and the prophets into account here in verses 4 through 6 because of their disobedience. Is it fair of God to forget their children since they have forgotten his law? Okay, what, is that, what does that look like? Did God forget that they existed. That's not what he's saying, right? What's, what's this language of forgetting about? Okay, punishment continuing. Okay, Bob. They're not giving him his due. They're not praying to him. They're not thinking of him. They're not remembering who he is and what he's done for them. They're not living as though he is their God. Okay. Yeah, so the forgetting and the remembering is not like we do when we don't do something we're supposed to. It's the remembering to bless, forgetting to curse, like that kind of Forgetting which leads to a curse, rather. Um, can someone read uh, verses 7 through 10, please? 7 through 10. Evan? Thank you. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. 
I will change their glory into shame. They will feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests, though I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Okay. What do we notice from these verses? Who is the the more they multiplied? Who is the they? Okay. So the more that the people of Israel multiply, the more they sin against God. Here's the interesting thing. There are incidents where the increase of the number of the people is associated with God's blessing. Like think about uh, in Exodus where the Egyptians try to wipe them out and they keep having more and more kids and they're sort of almost repopulating that, sec that area of Egypt. But now um, abundance of children and increase of numbers is not seen as a blessing. It is seen as an opportunity f in which they forget God because they feel like they don't need him. And so what would be glory for them? I mean, there is a right and proper blessing of increased children and larger families and growing population of a people that's supposed to be under God's favor. But instead of them being able to rejoice in that glory, God says in verse 7, I will change it into shame. Um, who is the they that feed on the sins of the people? Probably the priests or the prophets. Um, think about the behavior, for example, of Eli's sons or of Samuel's sons. What is their attitude was, hey, you know what? God said that we're supposed to stick the meat fork in the boiling pot of meat and pull out whatever happens to come out. And it could be the meat that you like or it could be a part that's not that great. But you're supposed to trust that God's going to provide for you. And what they did instead was they said, hey, um, you give us the nice part first. God can have the leftovers. He's not going to eat it anyway, so we'll enjoy what we like. And they even went further than that. We're actually committing immorality like almost at the door of the tabernacle with assorted women from the, tr from the tribes of Israel. And so to the extent that that behavior was likely to have been repeated in Hosea's day, feeding on the sin of the people and directing their desire toward their iniquity, it does not help them to point out the immorality of the people or the gluttony of the people if they themselves are practicing it because they're condemning themselves. And so in the sense that they encourage the people, oh yeah, God's happy with you. Oh yeah, do whatever you want. Oh yeah, feel free to just, anything that makes you happy, do it. That's the sort of message, going thinking about in the New Testament, People who have itching ears who want to be told that everything is great in your life and it'll keep going the way that you want, uh, that's a popular message, right? No one wants to be told, hey, stop doing what you're doing, your life is going to be disastrous, or hey, if you, if you follow God, life will be hard. 
We don't want to hear those kind of messages. We want to hear, if you follow God, you'll be rich and have everything your heart desires. Keep doing what you're doing because you're an amazing person and a wonderful person. Those are the sorts of messages that we want to hear. And to the extent that the priests and the prophets are telling the people those sorts of false messages instead of God's words, they are feeding as in gaining power or actually literally feeding as in getting the food that they want from the people because their food and their support came from the people themselves. But then verse 9, it will be like people like priests, I will punish them. Verse 10 is fascinating. Uh, verse 10 is basically like, you want to eat? I'm going to give you basically a tapeworm. You eat and you eat and you eat and you never get any bit better and in fact you get more and more sick because it's just disappearing into this black hole. If you love food, I will make it so that you can eat and eat and eat and eat and it will not make you any happier. If you love physical pleasure, it'll play the harlot but not increase. You're doing this, why? In worship of a false god because you think it will increase your fertility. I will make it so that it makes you barren and unable to have children and your plans are frustrated and fail. And all this because, verse 10, they've stopped giving heed to the Lord. Now, inability to have children is not necessarily tied to punishment from God, but in this verse it very clearly is because they're going about it the wrong way. Uh, who can read for us 11 to 14, please? 11 to 14. Bruce, thank you. Poetry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idols, and their diviners' wands inform them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot. Departing from the God, they offer sac sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. I will punish you, your daughters, when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with horrors and offer sac sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. Alright, what does it mean in verse 11? In what way do these things take away understanding? Okay. Uh, lust is a powerful thing. The more that you give into it, the less you are pleased by it, and the more it consumes your every waking thought. The same thing is true for drunkenness or any other sort of what society tends to call addictions. The more that you pursue those things, the less satisfied you are by them, but the more demands that they make on you, right? And so you'll have people who, you know, um, 
they will start going as far as they can without getting caught and sometimes getting to the point where they don't even care about getting caught because the desire for this thing consumes them so much. There's the fact, and I don't think this is his main point, there's the fact that there are diseases associated with um, immorality that actually rot your brain, but that I don't think is the primary focus of what he's saying. I think he's talking about this being an all-consuming thing that uh, is a harsh master and takes you away from God. Uh, Proverbs has a lot of comments about wine and new wine. It does not say... Mm, and it's, it's interesting to see the perspective that's laid out in Proverbs. Kings were not supposed to, in certain circumstances, partake of wine because they needed to be alert to make wise decisions in cases, distinguishing between cases for people, right? But then there's instances where it says, um, kind of like if your life is falling apart, then there's a solace, temporary solace to be found in wine, but then it condemns drunkenness and the person who never works and just sort of stumbles from place to place being drunk. And so it's kind of a complicated perspective on the relationship of God's people to wine, that in one instance it can be something associated with rejoicing, and in another case it can be something associated with disaster. And I think if we take these two things together, it comes down to what's the proper boundaries. Hey, King, if you're about to get up and decide a really important case in front of all the people, that's not the time to be drinking, right? Um, a person who has a physical appetite for sexual pleasure, the boundaries God has established is within marriage and nowhere else. To the extent that those boundaries are crossed over, it takes away the understanding. And there's this sort of, in parallel in Romans 1, there's this downward spiral of uh, sin leading to more sin, leading you further away from God, leading you to various kinds of degradation, right? So you start out worshiping idols like the gods of the Greeks and Romans, and you end up worshiping things like <coughs> bugs and disgusting things, right? That's what Romans talks about. Um, so verse 12, this, this consulting their wooden idol. Do we, do we see any examples of this elsewhere in Scripture? Or, or what does that look like? What, what specifically is, is being condemned? Like, why is it a bad, bad thing for them to consult a wooden idol? Jim? Just how far they've come off the track from the Lord. I mean, it, it's almost like they're all pagans at this point. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did God say? What's one of the first big commandments God gives them? Yeah, no gods before me, and... Yeah. Don't worship idols. And that could be an image of the true God in a false representation, which I think is what's going on with the golden calves, which ironically was a big part of the worship of the northern tribes of Israel, right? Bob? Interesting thing, too, is they're worshiping something that they made with their own hands. Uh huh. And they're not worshiping the one who made them. Yeah. Why is it silly to worship something that you've made? It should be obvious, but let's think about that for a minute. Right. To the extent that we worship anything that we've made, 
or a God that we've created in our own imagination, it's complete and utter foolishness. Because to Devin's point, how can it possibly help you? If I made it, how can it be greater than me? We need to worship God who is greater than us because he actually made us, right? And um, Isaiah, I think it's chapter 44, according to the footnote here, um, had this extended diatribe against idolatry. It says, you go cut down a tree, you burn half of it so you can cook your food, you make the other half into an idol. Why is the half that you made into an idol any more important than the half that got burned so you could cook supper? It's not. It's stupid. Don't do that. Um, the diviner's wand is perhaps less clear. Um, there's all sorts of objects associated with trying to predict the future. They've departed from God. Now, verse 13 is basically... Isaiah and Jeremiah both condemn the people for their sort of um, their wholesale giving themselves over to idolatry. It's like anywhere you guys find a tree, you go make an idol. It's not like you restrain yourself to making one idol. It's like every time you come across a place like here's a good spot for a grove to have a shrine for a false god, you set one up. So, not every last instance of it, but there's pretty like there's shrines and altars to false gods all over the land because the people just gave themselves wholesale to it. And then what's he saying when he says, "I will not punish your daughters or your pri or your brides, for the men themselves go apart with harlots." Is he saying he's not going to punish anybody at all? I don't think he's saying that. He's saying to the extent that they are not the ultimate cause of the problem, I'm going to start by condemning the leadership and work my way down. Okay, someone read verses 15 to 19 as we wrap up here these last few minutes. Devin, thank you. All right, so just really quickly here, uh, I don't know if you've got it in footnotes in your Bible. So Gilgal was a place of memorial that they established a memorial when they came into the land. Bethaven is house of vanity or something along those lines. And there was actually a city named that, but it's quite possible that God is using that as sort of a, um, like a mocking phrase to describe their place of worship. It's a house of vanity. Um, He's saying, don't swear as the Lord lives, because you have no interest in following what God wants. Don't take God's name in vain by making oaths to him. Um, if you're like a stubborn heifer, can you be pastured like a lamb in a large field? If you're being stubborn and not going your own way, is God going to lead you out to pasture? And then um, there's just sort of this giving over to it. He's joined to idols, leave them alone. 
and then all his pleasures are going to run out. Their liquor gone, they play the harlot continually, their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings. That's sort of this picture that the wind comes and sweeps them all away and leads ultimately to shame, but not necessarily to restoration without repentance. And so there's just sort of this uh, very sad picture that's painted of the people and where they're at before God. Any thoughts on these last few verses here? So we're reminded of God's faithfulness in chapter 3, that there is going to be a future restoration, but for the moment, there's a detailed list of charges brought against the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness to God. And that's sort of where it's going to continue um, in chapter 5, uh, and then chapter 7, and then it gets into the punishment in chapters 9 and 10. And then uh, sort of this back and forth, and then not really much hope until we get to chapter 14. So um, not necessarily going to be an encouraging look at these things, but I think a good sobering reminder of them. So, All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths from the life of Hosea. We pray that we would not be similarly um, stubborn in our sin that instead we would respond to your faithfulness even as Hosea demonstrated your faithfulness before people who were constantly turning away from you. Uh, we pray as we look at your word in a little while here from First Peter that we would also be challenged and encouraged. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.